What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Kevin Erdeman is one of the most interesting analysts when it comes to the U.S. housing market. He writes on Substack at kevinerdeman.substack.com, and he has two books, the first called Shut Out and the second called Building from the Ground Up, Reclaiming the American Housing Boom. In all of his writing and his analysis, Kevin breaks down a new framework for understanding the housing bubble, the financial crisis, and the costly housing markets. He understands why is housing so unaffordable in America, and he's got a couple of ideas on how we could solve it. This conversation, we go through many of his ideas, including how we got here, who's responsible, and how we move forward with more affordable housing in the United States. Here is my conversation with Kevin Erdeman. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Today's episode is brought to you by BASE. BASE is making it their mission to bring a billion people on chain. What exactly is BASE? It's a layer two offering a seamless experience for both builders and users. With near zero gas fees and rapid transaction speeds, BASE is shaping the future of the on-chain world. BASE is a canvas for everyone with hundreds of apps in the ecosystem, whether you're an emerging creator, a seasoned developer, or someone exploring the on-chain space for the first time. BASE is designed to bring your ideas to life. So if you're looking for a platform where the future of on-chain is being built daily, BASE is your destination. Join in and make on-chain the next online. Learn more at base.org or follow along on Twitter at buildonbase. Again, that's at buildonbase to see cool things to do on-chain every single day. Today's episode is brought to you by Trust and Will. I've gone through a number of different changes in my life over the last few years. I got married, I had a kid, and I had to start thinking about how could I ensure that my wife and my child would be okay if anything ever happened to me. That's where trust, wills, and estate planning come into play. Now, most people, what they do is they get introduced to a friend, an uncle, or someone in their local community. It tends to be someone who's really expensive, a lawyer, an accountant, or somebody who does estate planning, and they just simply are using a one-size-fits-all template and just telling you, pay me thousands of dollars, and I'll use the same thing for you as the guy down the street. But that's not what Trust and Will does. They have a trusted online estate planning product that starts as low as $159, which allows you to now protect your legacy from the comfort of your own home. Get to leverage their excellent customer support available via phone, email, or chat. They have thousands of five-star reviews and a rating of excellent on Trustpilot. It takes most people 20 to 30 minutes to complete their estate plan with Trust and Will. And not only that, but if you go to trustandwill.com pomp, you'll get 10% off, plus you'll get free shipping of all your estate planning documents. So go to trustandwill.com slash pomp and make sure you get an estate plan in place. Whether it's for you or one of your loved ones, having a trust and or a will can literally be the difference between someone being taken care of and someone not. Go check them out today at trustandwill.com slash pomp. 
All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Kevin here with me. Uh, Kevin, we are in probably the single worst housing affordability in the last 40 years or so. How did we get here? Uh, we got here by not building enough houses for about 30 years straight. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I think one of the things that people tend to do is they think of home, home prices uh, sort of as this uh, the, this idea that's uh, unrelated to you know the fundamental. If, you, if we were talking about stocks, we'd be talking about earnings. And for some reason, rent uh, just sort of gets forgotten in the estimate of what's happening in housing. And uh, housing is unaffordable because the rents are high, and the rents are high because we haven't been building enough houses. It really is just supply and demand uh, equation yeah. is determining it. Yep. Yeah. Com- completely. Uh, to first approximation, 100% of it is rent. Now, in the first book that you wrote uh, called Shut Out, you described uh, something called closed access cities and then contagion cities. And I thought maybe that'd be a good place to understand, okay, why is where the houses are being built so important as well? Yeah. Um yeah, so I, you know, this goes back to the to the two thousands bubble and bust, and you know, one of the major sort of touchstones of my work that that leads off to a different path of analysis is there, there was a very there's a very strong presumption that there was an over you know a, a period of excess and overbuilding uh, by two thousand eight we had this like excess of housing inventory that we had to work off <clears throat> and. Uh, and so that was really the first thing that brought me into this space to to, to study this space and, and end up uh, writing two books and everything else is discovering that really what was happening back then was these localized places. It's a very distinct list. It's Boston, New York City, uh, San Francisco, L.A., San Diego. Um, I call those those are the close access cities that just build far fewer you know, permit far fewer homes than in the other major metropolitan area, including the Rust Belt cities. And so really what happens is anytime you get any sort of economic expansion or just anything that would naturally sort of increase people's demand for things, including housing, there is no extra housing in those cities. Uh, if you think of it in terms of a sort of a units per capita, if you can't add units and if demand is sort of, um, or think of it as people per unit, maybe if if, if demand is um, uh, sort of, well, no units per sorry, units per capita is the best. If demand is sort of increasing the units per capita, if everyone's sort of uh, consuming a little more housing, a little more square footage, and you know, uh, uh, young adults moving out sooner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If units is fixed, then and your capita has to go down. <laughs> and it, literally that's what happens is these cities have a, have a counter cyclical uh, migration pattern, which was on steroids back then, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of residents moving out of those five cities into what you mentioned as the contagion cities, which then was, you know, Phoenix and Las Vegas and the Florida cities. Uh, so really at its base, the, the conventional wisdom was upside down. It was treated as this period of excess and overbuilding when really it was localized areas of underbuilding, like very distressed underbuilding that actually created sort of a refugee event. Um, and the places that looked like they were building in excess were, were just trying to keep up with this migration event and they couldn't. Uh, and so they had what you would conventionally call a bubble but it's a bubble driven by demand that's coming out of the places that have an undersupply. Now, since then, what we've done is sort of spread this shortage nationwide. Um, 
And so we sort of have, a, a, we've been underbuilding everywhere for 15 years now. Uh, but, you know, you got a little bit of that again with COVID of, of people moving out of certain cities. And it was a sort of the contagion cities were a slightly different set this time. It was the Boise's and Austin's and Phoenix is still part of that. But, um, but yeah, it's all driven by a lack of housing, which is creating these, migra- these, these, these cyclical migration events. So it, it makes sense to me in terms of going into the global uh, financial crisis and coming out of it. Uh, this idea of the closed access cities, not enough uh, supply, therefore people got to go somewhere else if they want to live. They move into the contagion cities. People are like, oh, here they come. Let's build a bunch. Wait, not as many of them showed up because there's other kind of cyclical events. And now we've got oversupply and undersupply in the the two different types of cities. You just said that for 15 years, we've been underbuilding nationally. So not Mm -hmm. just closed access, not just contagion cities, but across the country. Why has that been happening? I mean, very simply... I mean, you can think of it in terms of sort of categories of housing, and we've sort of just been making different categories illegal a step at a time over the last 50 years. So first, it was just generally in those closed access cities, uh, you know, there's sort of a metropolitan area wide obstruction to really all kinds of housing. Um, But, you know, at the core is sort of this, uh, you know, over the course of the 20th century, we sort of um, uh, sort of put a put a, a an obstacle in front of just the natural historical way that cities developed. You know, you go to a, you go to the the few places we have that are true cities, like downtown Chicago or Manhattan. Um, the building on the corner is like the fifth thing that's been there, right? It was a sheet meadow, then it was a then it was a a, a cottage, then it was a, a a large home, then it was a duplex, and now it's a, you know a brownstone or something, right? Or a, or a high rise. Um, we basically, over the course of the 20th century, put a, bunch of, put a bunch of zoning rules in place that said cities can't develop anymore like they used to. Once uh, once somebody's there that has enough political power, they can say, okay, this is what the city's going to look like forever. And it's an affront to me if anything happens from now on. Um, and that, you know, that became binding in those five cities, but it's but it was in the background of every city. And most of the other cities were making up for it by building entry-level uh, single-family housing out in the excerpts. Uh, and effectively, what we did in 2008 is killed the entry-level single-family home market through mortgage over-regulation. Um, the, uh, the, in fact, that's really the, the first thing that brought me into this topic was realizing back in 2000, that, that, that the market back in 2005, all that supposed excess in mortgage lending is a little bit, it's greatly overstated and sort of misstated that there wasn't really a surge of low-income owner-occupiers at the time, uh, but we. But that's the problem we tried to solve. Was we tried to we we thought that was the problem. We basically regulated entry-level owner-occupiers out of the mortgage system. The the average the median credit score on a new mortgage went from it had been seven twenty-ish for years up until two thousand eight, and then it went up to seven sixty, and it's just been there ever since. Um, so. Effectively, this band-aid that every other city had on its housing supply, which is it's very hard to build duplexes and apartment complexes downtown and all that. Uh, we ripped off that band-aid by saying, you, you know, anybody that would be buying a $250,000 new home out on the outskirts of town can't get a mortgage anymore. And we just killed it. We, that, was, that was more than a half million units a year going into the crisis, and it just dissipated. Just that market went away. So it really took a decade for uh, 
uh, effectively, we took the owner occupiers out of that market. They had to eventually be replaced by institutional buyers, landlords, and renters. And now you've got these institutions buying build-to-rent neighborhoods that are that are finally um, triggering new supply. And really, that to trigger that supply, it really took a decade of rents rising enough to get the price points back up to where landlords want to build those houses because it's still a condition where the the owner occupiers can't get the mortgages for them. And so that's basically where we are today is we had this basically this 30% shock to rents to get the price to rent ratio uh, to get to get these lower price to rent ratios up to where the price will trigger new building for this new landlord tenant uh situation. Now those as a first step, those families should just be owners. They should be able to just get the mortgage and own those houses, and they'd be willing to pay a little more than the landlords are because it's easier to be a landlord to yourself. Um, but also, a lot of those families would just be living in duplexes and 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 apartment complexes and high rises downtown if we could build those. So, uh, and they'd be living in one in LA instead of Phoenix if LA you know, got off its um, uh, trends of, of overregulation. So there's sort of several steps of housing that that we've been just regulating out of existence to the point now where the only thing left that that's that's that we're capable of allowing is uh, on the margin is uh, is uh, institutionally owned single family homes. So this excess uh, building, like the the fear of excess building, really, and I think this is kind of a key component to the second book that you wrote, uh, building from the ground. Um, why are people f- so fearful? Like, what, what are they scared of for us to build more homes? Is it like an aesthetic thing? Like in a San Francisco, they don't want to go above a certain level. Is it a um, overpopulation? Like, like, what is the thing that is driving the fear? Uh-huh. I mean, as far as the regulatory, I mean, there's sort of a, uh, an investor macroeconomic fear of like uh, of a f- thinking that overbuilding was the cause of 2008 and being afraid of of like the market doing that again. But in terms of the locals that are actually creating these regulations, I mean, I think it really does just come down to that band aid that that um, you know nobody ever likes change. There, there was always some discomfort with with the with the the uh, you know fluctuations of, of development within a city it, there were always um, people that didn't like what was going down at the corner um, and I think just you know the automobile sort of allowed us to avoid that discomfort for a century uh, because you know it's just a lot less trouble to to build the place that you know the, the developers can get approved to build that neighborhood out in the exurbs and so it, get, it gets approved and I think we sort of just we spent a, a century sort of uh, having these political, um, the uh, sort of the the skill, the political skills to let a city change sort of atrophied because we had this bandaid and the exurbs and the automobiles that allowed us to get from those houses to where we wanted to get, uh, and and this just sort of built up over a century and now all of a sudden especially then when we pulled the band-aid off in 2008 it's like oh we need a way to build houses well we've spent a century putting rules in place um that we sort of could avoid dealing with uh and of course there's now the yimby movement you know there's a lot of movement sort of to erase some of those um uh developments and i think that'll continue um but you know i i just think it's it's a it's a matter of there being a slight discomfort that sort of all of us share when something's happening around us. And it was easy to sort of let the, 
the political power, the sort of the petty local political power to to stop those discomforts from happening to sort of just billow up and build up within our political processes. So now I think that the political power sort of is a mismatch of really the true um, discomfort. But of course, in that negotiating process in the local politics, those discomforts get yelled, you know, yelled at and and um, uh, exaggerated. And, you know, and so it seems like a big deal, right? But for the most part, you know, having the, 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 the four plex down the road is really is not actually going to ruin the neighborhood, you know? <laughs> Now, you mentioned the institutional ownership of single family homes kind of being like the end game here. Uh, if you listen to the peanut gallery on the Internet, they will tell you that like big, bad, you know, a uh, large financial institution is going to buy up all the homes and then you will rent everything. You will own nothing. and You will be happy uh, type uh, mantra. Um, maybe there is some truth to that. Uh, obviously, they do own a lot of homes. Um, what are the pros and cons of institutional ownership of uh, single family homes in America? I mean, I, I think it's, it's, I mean, if you compare it to say a small scale landlord, it's, it's the traditional sort of pros and cons, you know, there's some ways that they're better, they're more, you know, that they really need to have some reputation if they own thousands of units and they, and they don't want to get a reputation as a, as a landlord to avoid, um, you know, you have a lot more variability and a lot less ability to understand whether a, a small scale landlord is a good person that's going to give you your deposit back or not or you know um so there's pluses and minuses either way and there's all sorts of studies about you know oh uh, the institution the large institutions evict people more and that sort of stuff but i think those differences are all really on the margin and probably don't matter that much in the big picture um i do think for the most part it's a it's a big it's a big con to have uh to to be if, especially if you're a long-term resident, you should own the place you live in. It doesn't make sense to to have a landlord relationship in that mix. Um, but I think the mistake people make is thinking that it's the institutions coming in that, that that's really more of an effect than a cause. The cause is that we took 10 or 20 or 30 million households and decided in 2008 they weren't qualified to get a mortgage anymore, even though they had been for decades and they really didn't have that much to do with what happened in 2008. So, uh, you know, what I find um, uh, a little bit frustrating is that, uh, that, you know, there's, it's sort of a misidentification to say that these, that these institutions are say driving up the prices and whatnot. The, the core issue is that those families can't get mortgages and the people that complain about the private equity and the big institutions are, are generally just totally, uh, in curious about the about this probably the biggest political um, uh, act to take place in generations, which was dry, you know locking those families out of the mortgage market. No, nobody really seems to have no care or really have noticed that it happened because it happened in the in the chaos of the crisis. Um, but really, you know, part of my work is sort of pulling the data the 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 evidence from the data that you can really see that closing down those mortgage markets um, had a tremendous effect on on real estate values after 2008. There was this late collapse in working class uh, neighborhood home values that clearly was a result of this tightening of, of lending that really um, uh, matters a lot more than the stuff that was happening in the closed access and contagion cities. Um, places from Dallas to Atlanta to, you know, every city across the country, whether they had a bubble or not, 
the low end loses 10, 20, 30% compared to the high end after 2008 because we did this policy decision on mortgage regulation. Uh, really was, it's just a, a, a nuclear bomb in the middle of working class uh, balance sheets. And really just nobody, nobody even knows that it happened. Given what you said so far, my conclusion is that uh, how to solve housing affordability is to build more housing. If that is correct, um, how do we determine what type of housing, where, and who should be building it? Seems to be a big question as well. How do you think about those three things? I mean, I think we just have to make the market work. So, you know, that in theory, um, in theory, you would like to have municipalities um, sort of planning out how that's going to develop. There's two problems with that. The first problem is that, it, you know, the, we're really talking about a metropolitan area, like each metropolitan area is sort of a, an entity. You know, there's com it, the commuter zone really defines what's going to happen. And you can't, it, you, when you divide that up into these municipalities that all have their little part of the metro area, um, there's just no way that they can govern um, that planning process. So what happens is they all sort of become little fiefdoms of uh, trying to ensure that they're not the part of town that, that declines in socioeconomic status. Uh, and so what happens is you just get sclerosis throughout the market of, of everyone making it illegal to build anything that might bring in families that have a slightly different socioeconomic status than the ones that are there. And I think that problem still would exist even at the metro area level. Um, even if we did fix that governance problem. So, you know, I'd like to think that there is a potential for careful planning, but uh, 100 years of, of um, experience says we just aren't capable of doing it well. And actually, at the point we are now, anarchy is an improvement. Uh, anarchy is probably not uh, optimal, but it's better than what we've where we've come to. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people that work on the politics of it, and that's not really uh, my focus, uh, but it, it does sort of help to drive my um, my project to realize that really there's nothing we could do that's worse than what we're, than what we're doing now. <laughs> when we think about um, inside some of these dense cities, one of the uh, areas that I probably have the most uh, familiarity with is in New York City. Uh, maybe in the mid 2010s, uh, there was a lot of foreign buyers that were coming to the market. They were buying up uh, apartments, but mainly kind of luxury type apartments. And in talking to people in the market, they were like, oh, here comes all this money we need to build. Right. And we need to be able to satisfy that demand. Similar to your idea of closed access cities and contagion cities um, and people never kind of showing up in full force to the contagion cities, uh, there was capital controls in some of these foreign countries, including places like China. And mm -hmm. so when the buildings finally got built and the inventory came online, it almost feels like there's a bifurcation. In the luxury market, there is much more supply available and some of these units will sit for very long periods of time. But New York City rents are at all-time highs because the kind of lower part of the market is actually uh, the, the opposite imbalance, right? There's way more demand than there is uh, supply. And so how do you think about maybe the bifurcation of luxury versus non-luxury in some of these cities? Yeah, really, that's at the heart of the model that I use at the Substack is that I have a series of papers that I put out through the Mercatus Center. Um, 
And if you, if you go to my Substack, uh, the, the little uh, menus across the top of the research button is where you can see links to those papers. And really what the, the model I developed uh, just by sort of looking at the um, trends in home prices and, and seeing what was different about the closed access cities versus other cities is that um, when, you, when you have an endemic shortage of housing, uh, I think sort of the, the basic understanding of what's happening within a, met, a metropolitan area can be thought of as just that <clears throat> the natural um, elasticity of demand for low-income uh, families versus high-income families. And, um, you know, you could think of it in terms of at the low-end housing is a necessity. And, you know, the, what we call housing is a basket of all sorts of things that actually are a part of what you're buying with housing. There's the actual walls and the ceilings, you know, they're staying dry in a rainstorm, having a place to sleep, a place to make your meals. There's, you know, neighborhood character. People like to live around uh, people that are wealthier than they are uh, in a, a nice school district uh, with a park nearby. <coughs> um, uh, you know, uh, access to amenities, you know, there's all these sorts of things that are a part of that basket. And so you start with staying dry and cooking your meals, but all that other stuff is sort of, you know, that's a necessity and everything else that you're adding is sort of a luxury, but it's all part of a basket of what is housing, right? And so at the high end, it's it's mostly luxury that, that foreigner buying the penthouse suite in Manhattan. Um, and demand for luxuries is is elastic. If you uh, if you have less money, you're just going to go without it. It's not a big deal, right? And as you move down to the low end where it's a necessity, then demand becomes inelastic. You know, I'm trying to to hang on to the job and the family I have in LA, and if rents go up another, you know, I, I'm sort of at the at the location that's the least I can put up with, and the rents go up another ten percent. What am I going to do but pay pay the ten percent, right? So. You get this natural gradient of demand behavior from top to bottom. And so what happens is when you have an endemic uh, lack of supply at the top, it's, um, it's almost not noticeable. Like uh, I have X amount of dollars. It's normal for a person with my amount of dollars to spend this amount on housing. And in this city, that gets you a 2000 square foot condo, uh, you know, on, on Fifth Avenue or something. Right. And so that's what you get. And, you know, it's not like you're you're uh, gnashing your teeth and, and rending your garments that you didn't get an extra thousand square feet, right? So you naturally actually compromise on the real housing, the amount of housing you get, right? And as you move down market, um, uh, you don't change how much housing you get. You just pay the extra price. And so what happens is you get this systematic uh, sort of substitutions that all go downward where you start at the top and and there's not the 3000 square foot condo that you would have available in Atlanta or Dallas and so you literally like trade down neighborhoods right you trade into it you buy into a neighborhood that's a lower socioeconomic status than you would have been in Atlanta or Dallas that means there's less units available in that neighborhood for the people that would normally live there right so they have to trade down and and that trading down like builds up as you move down the the you know the stock of housing within the metropolitan area and it really creates this distinctive systematic uh, um, picture where we, in cities where you don't have enough housing the rents and the prices go up the most at the low end and then and then related to that is you 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 
always have more uh, out migration from that city from the low end. Eventually, it gets to the point where they don't have options left and some family on the margin moves away from the city entirely. So, so where you have a supply problem, uh, you, it's like a cantilever. Um, you know, at the top end, the prices really don't change that much because everyone's just changing their, their consumption and the prices and rents systematically go up at the low end. So a lot of times what people do is they do analysis where they look at the median price of homes in a, in a city. Um, and what's uh, what I have found is that really the median doesn't mean anything except that it's halfway to the bottom, right? So the median house in LA or New York City is expensive, but it's only expensive because it's a part, of, it's halfway in this process to, you know, the price down here that it takes to get somebody to move out of the city entirely. Um, and so that's really a way you can tell the difference between an LA and an Austin is in Austin, they don't have this endemic supply problem, and but Austin was a contagion city, um, uh, you know, in this in the post-COVID period. So in Austin, prices went like this, right? They went up and down everywhere because it was just this migration surge and it wasn't this systematic behavior that comes from a lack of supply. Uh, so you can you can really tell the difference between a housing a temporary housing boom and an endemic shortage because in a city, you know, if you're looking at zip code incomes here and prices in a in a city that's just having a boom and bust like Phoenix in 2005 or Austin in 2020, it goes like this. But in a city like LA or New York City, it goes like this. Actually, it's just in those cities now, it's just stuck like this. And actually, it's just a process of people moving into neighborhoods and people getting kicked out the bottom, moving to the other places. And so they're just stuck at this level uh, where it's it's more it's almost more of a flow issue when you're looking at home prices in the housing market in those cities of just households basically flowing out, <laughs> uh, getting priced out through rising rents and prices. Um, so yeah, it's, that's that's fundamentally at the core of how I analyze cities to know what's going on there. Now, when we see um, the home builders, especially the ones that are publicly traded, I think that gives us the best sense in terms of, you know, where are they going? What are they doing? Um, do you glean any data from them in terms of potentially are we solving the problem? Like, are, are they going to just ramp up building? And, you know, we talk in five years and we're like, all right, we recognize that we underbuilt. Now we're building enough and, and we get mm -hmm. out of the problem. Or is the message maybe a little bit more dire? And it's like, look, there really isn't any sort of data point or sign that we're headed in the right direction now? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's there's sort of multifamily and there's single family. And multifamily is a lot more, uh, you know, private equity and, and REITs and, and, you know, these sort of uh, distributed uh, institutions that, you know, build a project at a time. Um, and I would say that part of the market is just, has just been hitting its regulatory peak in terms of just, um, you know, I think we, we've been hitting... 400,000 units a year or so that basically just that's because they're all waiting at the permit office to get permission for that next unit. And that's basically just happening in cities across the country. So I think that will slowly loosen up as the MB political movement gains ground. Um, but it's really a political question. Now, as far as the public home builders that are building single family home neighborhoods, I think that's a really interesting space because um, they have really been um, uh, uh, supply constrained in the COVID era. And so um, if you look at completions since 2019, uh, single family home completions, it's basically a straight line. 
Now, what happened is uh, COVID hit and everyone didn't know what was going to happen at first. And then all of a sudden there was this housing boom and sales went way up. And when sales went way up, basically all the uh, buyers, you know, they bought up all the finished units that were setting, you know, this sort of normal amount of inventory that was sitting there. They bought all that up. They bought up all the units under construction. And then for a year, year and a half, um, <clears throat> the supply, the COVID related supply issue really prevented us from actually meeting demand. So really for about a year and a half, what was happening is the buyers were sort of paying a premium to to be put in a queue at the back of the line for a house that wasn't going to be, be built any faster than if they had weren't buying it. Um, and, Cause there was no inventory the, the builders were going to build it. But if you're willing to pay us an extra 10%, we'll put your name on it. It's still going to take an extra three months to build compared to what it used to, uh, but your name's in the queue. Um, and that really was what was happening during the inflationary period. Um, and so what happened is eventually when the inflationary period stopped and everything leveled out, sales declined quite a bit. And <clears throat> people tend to view that as like a normal cyclical, um, uh, you know, ups and downs. But really, uh, the reduction in sales was just the end of this, uh, you know, negotiation to put you in the queue. <laughs> the sales really never declined past, uh, you know, below the point where we can complete houses anyway. We, the, the home builders are still at capacity and they're going to be at capacity in a year. And they're not, they, they haven't had any trouble selling finished homes and they're not going to have any trouble selling finished homes. Um, so we're not really at the, like the bottom of a sales uh, collapse. We're, we're at the end of this very unique period. And as far as I can tell, it's never happened before in American housing markets where home builders literally just uh, didn't have, uh, units to sell um, and weren't going to. So I think it looks bearish if you look at that trend, that downtrend in um, sales, but really the home builders are basically at the top end of a normal market, what would normally be a normal market. And I think from here, we're just going to see actually a very boring, as those COVID supply constraints get worked out and they can get transformers into the to the electrical um, infrastructure to open the neighborhood and get the windows in and everything else that's been uh, delaying uh, construction, um, then we're just going to glide into back into a growth, a growth in completions and sales are just going to follow along with that, I think. Now, there's two other topics I want to talk about before I let you go. Uh, the first is politics. Second is the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. Federal Reserve is not a political organization, uh, unless you talk to some people and they may, they may think so. So maybe we'll start there. Um, the Federal Reserve's loose monetary policy, I think a lot of people say, uh, you know, drove immense rises in prices uh, of both real estate, but also, you know, higher inflation, et cetera. And uh, that's the cause of some of this. How much credence do you put to the Federal Reserve's kind of contribution to housing affordability um, or the lack thereof? Uh, or is that maybe a, an easy, lazy excuse and it's really not as uh intense of an involvement yeah i de i am definitely a uh have a i suppose you'd call it a heterodox view on that um i don't think the fed really has had anything to do with uh, housing affordability and price trends over the last year three years five years 40 years um so uh, as a uh 
I'll, I'll start saying the two th- in the in the 2010s. There's you know the ZERP, the zero interest rate policy that um, gets um, a lot of gruff. <laughs> and um, what I say is uh, ZER wasn't a P. It wasn't a policy. The natural interest rate was uh, was low. Uh, mortgage rates are what mortgage rates are because the market put, has put them there. Partly because we locked. 20 million families out of the mortgage market. So there's no demand for mortgages. Um, and so, uh, you know, in building from the ground up, I go, that that's the book that's really about sort of the timeline of the, of the, um, of the financial crisis. And initially um, when, um, when the fed started a QE it was actually because they were trying to keep the target interest rate at 2%. And it was so far above neutral that in Ben Bernanke's memoir, he says if they hadn't started doing QE, where effectively initially what QE was, was basically borrowing cash back from the banks instead of printing it um, because they were trying to maintain their 2% uh, target, which they never could actually hit. Um, uh, the, the the Fed went to zero percent, screaming and kicking, and they actually created a crisis trying not to. Um, so the initial drop to zero percent interest rates was certainly not a Fed policy. Uh, and in fact, had they dropped uh, rates to zero percent when they should have, we might not have had a crisis. Um, and it's not the the period since then isn't that different. Like the 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 low rates are the rates are low because. The as as Milton Friedman used to say, low interest rates aren't a sign of current loose policy; they're a sign of past tight policy, and that's basically where we've been for 15 years. Um, so I just wouldn't I wouldn't attribute any of the stuff that was happening in housing pre-COVID to the Fed. The 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 Fed was we were at zero because zero is the market rate, um, and. Uh, home prices weren't high because mortgages were low because you can explain high home prices with, with high rents. And if we were overstimulating housing for the last 40 years, surely you'd expect to get a little bit of rent relief from that, but we've seen the opposite for 40 years. So um, so I just don't attribute anything to, to Fed policy. And in terms of the post-COVID period, I'm fully on team transitory. The, in, the inflation was international. It was due to these supply constraints. Um, you know, I suppose we could have uh, uh, sucked every dollar out of the economy and and um, and you know used um, uh, gold bars and, and clamshells to buy things with, but I don't think that would have made us any better off. Uh, I don't think the Fed should have tried to lower. You know, it was inflation that came about from other reasons, not not really from them overstimulating, and they had no business trying to reverse it. And in fact, that inflation reversed before. Um, any significant uh, um, uh, interest rate uh, increases happen. So, uh, as of um, you know, the the last real above uh, ex, you know excess month of of inflation was June twenty twenty two, where I I like to look at CPI inflation without the shelter component for a number of reasons, um, and it's actually much higher. In the summer of 2022, without the shelter, because the shelter component has this this lag, F because of the way they measure it through survey data. Um, so if you take this shelter component out, June, June 22, it's it's like 
14% inflation. And then July, it's back to basically 2%. And it's been 2% since, you know, for 18 months since then. Um, in June 2022, the Fed target rate is like a, a percent and a quarter. And there, there's just, there's no, it, it's implausible that you could reverse 14% inflation with a one and a quarter percent <laughs> target rate. Uh, you know, uh, n- nobody back in Volcker's day, nobody would have said that, oh, he's he's increased the target rate to a percent and a quarter. The 70s are over now, right? Uh, if it's truly monetary inflation, they would have needed to raise rates to 10 or 15%. Inflation dropped because it was transitory. It had nothing to do with them. And actually, they did a great thing by not trying to reverse it, which actually ended up raising long-term rates. And so really what I think the Fed mostly did is chase those long-term rates up, which is great. The long-term rates rose because sentiment improved um, and there's a lot of pent-up production potential because of all these COVID supply constraints that we've been dealing with. So, um, so I think I think the Fed was actually pretty loose in mid 2022, which was which was exactly what we want them to be because now we didn't get a deflation when when that transitory inflation dropped because the Fed's been loose. I think that probably helped keep inflation above zero right now, and um, and so you know I do think they need to lower rates a little bit going forward. And of course, we've seen a shift in the last month or so of, of expectations moving that way. So I think eventually they'll get back to three or 4% and we'll have a nice upward sloping yield curve. And and um, yeah, I, I think Jay Powell has been fantastic. <laughs> the, uh, the last question I have is around politics. Many of the cities that you uh, described um, in, in terms of these uh, closed access cities, uh, I think the narrative online is they're Democrat controlled. You know, they have very kind of destructive policies, um, whether that is true or not um, on those specific cities. Uh, how do you think politics plays into this? And and is one political party maybe more to blame or, or their policies tend to create or help uh, the situation? Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, you know, the housing issue is sort of funny because it's very, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't map to the normal left, right, um, uh, you know, um, map that we use there, there's yimbies and nimbies on both ends of the extreme. Uh, I, I think, you know, I used to be sort of more of a like, oh, the progressives are, you know, hypocrites and they're ruining the cities with, but you know, there are natural um, stresses that come from urban living that, you know, when when we're all in close quarters, it, it, a city is a hard thing to manage. And I think it tends to lend itself to, um, you know, to more uh, more blue, pol- you know, politics than than a small city or rural area does because you end up with all these you know, um, relational things that you have to deal with between classes and between neighborhoods and between, you know, because everyone's in close quarters um, uh, and and a lot of, you know, problems with with, um, public benefits or crime, you know, sort of lend themselves to a communal um, politics. Um, So I'm not sure that, I, I think sort of, Cities are where this problem is a problem we have to deal with, and it just so happens that cities tend to be more blue. 
Um, and so the, the blue politicians are there where the problem is difficult. Um, uh, but, you know, you certainly, it, you know, it, it, it's irritating to see some of the, you know, sort of um, uh, hypocritical, uh, you know, anti-market rhetoric that you see in the cities, uh, you know, sort of pretending to be for the for the poor families when really the policies just the, the de facto policies are to just make it impossible to build housing at all that at the end of the day leads to this migration within the city that basically leads to all the poor families moving out. So um, uh, it's certainly the, the, the progressives in those cities certainly um, uh, are good at playing that sort of hypocritical pay yourself on the back game while they make sure nobody of a lower socioeconomic status is ever going to move there. <laughs> Where can we send people to find your books or find you online if they want to learn more about this or engage uh, further with these ideas? Um, at, at Twitter, uh, I'm at K.A. Erdman. It's K-A-E-R-D-M-A-N-N uh, is, uh, is my handle there. Uh, the substack is kevinerdman.substack.com. Um, and it's called the Erdman Housing Tracker. Uh, and then uh, um, the two books are Shut, Shut Out, which Shut Out is sort of a sort of sets the background like uh you know here's what here's all the ways that a shortage of housing uh is affecting our economy and sort of a big part of that is that it created this boom and bust cycle in the 2000s uh and then i sort of tease that and shut out and then building from the ground up is more of the timeline of walking through the those events with this with these different uh, you know, colored glasses on in terms of thinking of it as being a housing shortage instead of a housing uh, bubble. Um, and so, yeah, both of those are, and I, I would say the shutout is probably a little more academic, whereas building from the ground up, I think a little more accessible in terms of the, the writing. Um, and you could think of shutout as uh, sort of, it's sort of the microeconomics and, and um, building from the ground up is sort of, sort of the macroeconomics um, uh, of the of housing and, and the economy over the last twenty years, um, so yeah, that's where that's where people can find me. I, uh, I highly suggest people go read the books and uh, subscribe to your Substack. You do a fantastic job talking about the housing market, and I've learned a lot. So uh, thank you so much for all the time, energy, effort that goes into uh, into all the work. And uh, we definitely do this again in the future. Great, yeah, I'd love to. Thanks.